0: With me to Philippians chapter four, because we have quite a bit to go through today. And I just want to warn you that that clock up there that I normally use to judge how much time I have has stopped working. So we're going to be here for a while. Go to Philippians chapter four. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, as Lee was teaching, what's up? Oh, yeah, Devin's going to be up there going. Shut up. Um, a couple of weeks ago, as Lee was teaching on the previous section. He he was studying how Paul addresses a couple of women in the church that have started having a little bit of infighting and bickering. And he's calling them to stop kind of railing at one another, start working together to continue to advance the gospel. And in verse 4 of chapter 4, he now turns his attention from those women in particular to the church as a whole. And he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, the first dozen or so times that I read over this, I will confess that to me it felt pretty disjointed. It almost felt like Paul was kind of nearing the end of his letter, and he's just kind of throwing out different things that that are kind of in the same vein but don't really connect. And I was saying that to Kathy last night. She's like, oh, I totally see how it fits together. I'm like, great, you come and teach this then. (laughs) The key, however, after like the dozenth time that I'd read it, the key is a verse that I just had this tendency to skip right over. I would read it, but I didn't hear it. And it was the first verse. Let me read it here real quickly. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. And I think the reason that I skip over that when I read it is because it sounds like one of those trite Christian platitudes, right? Rejoice. Don't worry, be happy. Hakuna matata. It's one of those things. It's like, that's great, you know, but what are you asking me to do? Just disregard what's going on in my life? Just go ahead and, Paul, are you telling these Philippian Christians who are living in a city that is averse to your perspective on life that worship Caesar and are persecuting them because of their worship of Jesus Christ? Are you saying to them, hey, just stick your head in the sands like holy ostriches? And pretend like the world around you doesn't hate you. Are you Are you telling them, just disregard the, the conflict going on inside the church? Is that what you're saying? Just ignore it? Not at all. That's not at all what he's saying. And we'll get into what he really is saying. But one thing is certain. This point of rejoicing is important. Because again and again throughout this short letter, Paul calls them to do it. It's perhaps the single greatest through line in this entire letter. When we were beginning this whole series, Lee goes, yeah... Philippians, it's a, it's a letter about joy. I'm like, I don't really see that. I see it as a whole lot of other things. But now as I'm getting near the end of it, I'm realizing he was absolutely right. This entire letter is steeped in the call to be joyful. One of the things that Lee pointed out a couple months back is that joy is very different from happiness because happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. When things are going well, we're happy. When, when things aren 't so great, not so happy. Joy, on the other hand, is an attitude it 's a posture towards life that transcends our circumstances. Another thing I want to point out today, and i 'm going to ask you to turn just a couple of verses or a couple of chapters back to chapter one. so go to Philippians chapter one, verse twelve, because Paul is going to model for us another thing that is absolutely true about joy, and that 's this: true joy comes from a proper perspective it flows out of having a proper perspective on life what i'm about to read i just want i want to remind you the context into which paul is writing this he is sitting in prison whether in house arrest or in some jail cell awaiting a trial that could very well result in his execution at the hands of his roman captors At the same time, he's got people who are out in the community around him who are preaching the gospel with malintent, hoping somehow to stir up trouble for him and get him in even more trouble than he's already in. Okay, If I were Paul in this situation and I was writing a letter to the Philippians, people who had supported me financially and all of these things, I would be begging them, pray that God protects me from this. Pray that the outcome be I'm completely exonerated and that those people who keep trying to stir up trouble, that they're the ones who get in trouble. I would be overwhelmed with anxiety and with anger. But listen to what Paul says here. Listen to his attitude and the way that he views what he's going through. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and by the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That doesn't sound like a guy who's terrified of his mortality does it. It doesn't sound like a guy who's staring death in the face. That doesn't sound like some angry guy looking at people who are intentionally trying to stir up trouble for him. Why? What's what is his secret? I think honestly Paul's biggest secret is his perspective on life because he has learned that he is not the center of his own little story. He's not the main character. God is not some bit player or some supporting cast member there to make his life comfortable and happy. The greatest important thing in his world is not his own comfort. It's not his own safety. It's not his own satisfaction in life. Instead, his perspective, as he steps back from the troubles that he's encountering, he views it in light of eternity, doesn't he? And he says, listen, I'm not the center of my own story. God is the center of all of history. It's his story. I get to be a supporting cast member to him. And the greatest good is not my comfort, my safety, my satisfaction. The greatest good is that God's purpose and plan continues to advance. And if my being in jail advances that, then praise be to God. If people who are intending to stir up trouble for me actually advance the gospel, then praise be to God. And if my death advances the gospel and advances God's kingdom, then praise be to God. Because for me, to live, I get to model Christ. But for me to die, that's gain because I get to go spend eternity with him. Jesus said it this way to his disciples. Hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Meaning that even death doesn't get the last word anymore. I wonder for us... Because it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, just view life in light of eternity. And all of a sudden your, your troubles become a lot less important in light of eternity, right? They become momentary troubles. But I wonder if we actually began to look at the circumstances of our own life, whether it be health, whether it be financial issues, whether it be relational issues, whether it be issues of, of addiction or things that are just overwhelming us. And when we, when we focus on them in the moment, that's all we can see. But when we step back, I wonder what our perspective on those things would be. In your outline, there's a, a section with a question. What aspects of your life, the responsibilities, circumstances, trials, would look different if you began to view them in light of eternity? That's not a rhetorical question. I'd actually like you to take about two minutes right now with a pen in hand. And I'd like you to answer that question. What are one or two things that you think, if you began to view them in light of eternity, might change your perspective on that? Go ahead and do that right now. These circumstances, through the light of eternity, how might my perspective change? What are a couple of things that your perspective might change on? Anyway, like I said, I'm sorry to make church interactive. Um, so I have a friend and a guy who I consider a very close mentor named Pete McKenzie. I was, I was sitting down with him a couple of weeks ago, and I was just kind of processing through some of the, the trials that my f- family is going through currently. And he sideswiped me with this statement that just... Oh, anyway, he said this. He said, Eric, it seems like you're looking at the trials that you're currently facing as obstacles to be overcome, as things just to get past so you can go back to your regularly scheduled life. What if you begin to look at the obstacles that you're encountering as your friends, as things that God has placed there to help you grow in your spiritual maturity. And I think you could tell from my, my posture and my, the lack of comment that a couple of things. A, I didn't really fully understand the implications of what he was saying. But B, that the thing I did understand, I didn't really like. <laughs> so, so he decided to show me by example. He told me about what was going on in his own life. See, Pete is currently undergoing... He's got cancer. And he's battling that right now. And he said that when he was first diagnosed with it, he railed against it. He tried, to, he tried to figure out every single way to get past the cancer because it was an obstacle to be overcome so he'd go back to his regularly scheduled life. But as he began to bring his cancer to before God and pray about it, God began to change his perspective on it. And he began to recognize... The cancer for what it could be, even though it's something that he hopes that he can be healed completely of, it can also be a friend. And as he began to view it as a friend, he began to see that it affected his perspective on a lot of things because it reminded him daily of his mortality and that he's not promised tomorrow. And because of that fact, he began to approach conversations with people differently. He was more present. It began to affect his relationship with God, as opposed to feeling kind of autonomous from God, going, hey, you know, I'll I'll, I'll hit you up when I need something. He found himself being more independent, or I'm sorry, more dependent and intimately connected to God on a daily basis and throughout the day. It began to affect his relationship with his wife, his relationship with his kids, with coworkers. It began to affect his priorities in life. Everything was altered when he began to view this thing that he had been seeing as an ailment, as a malady that he needed to get over, as an obstacle to be surmounted. When he began to view it through the lens of this is a friend that God can use to train me up, it changed everything. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read this really quickly. This is in Hebrews chapter 12. It's also written in your notes, in your bulletin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 says this, Endure hardship as discipline. Another way we could read that is endure hardship as training. And then skip down to verse 11. No discipline or training seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained up by it. No training is comfortable. No discipline is fun. But when we encounter circumstances like cancer, like a fight, like joblessness or or a job that you just don't like, we have one of two options in how to approach it. One is to get angry about it, angry about the circumstances, This really comes from the perspective that life is about me. I am the central character, and the greatest good of my story is my happiness, my contentment, my safety, my security, all that. And when we begin to view it from that perspective, and we begin to look at these things and go, God, why don't you care about this? And we begin to push back against it, and we just want to get through it. And you know what we can do? We can completely miss the point we won't learn anything from it other than to be angry at God and think that he has somehow turned his back on us. On the flip side, if we begin to look at the things that we encounter in life, the difficulties as discipline and training, as a way that God can use, not necessarily saying that God is making these happen. things happen, okay? God does not desire that any spouse cheat on their spouse. God does not desire that we become addicted to certain things in our life. God does not desire the brokenness that this world is so readily ready to hand out. But God is a God of redeeming even the worst things. And he can make something beautiful out of the deepest brokenness. And when we begin to view those things, whether it's from God or whether it's simply something that we have brought upon ourselves, or somebody else has brought upon us and we begin to lean into them and view them as something that we can grow through and learn through, then something interesting happens. We can actually be trained to be stronger, to be more righteous, to find peace in the midst of the brokenness. I, I see this choice ever before me every time Kat and I get into a disagreement which very quickly kind of spirals downhill into a fight. We used to, say, we used to call them clarifications because I'm the king of semantics. It's like, we'll call them a clarification. It's not nearly as bad. We fight now, okay? We're, we're, we've been married eight years. We fight now. And, and when we have a fight, my natural tendency is to get angry, to say something mean, and walk away. Because I would much rather avoid the whole conversation altogether. Because I know what's at the end of this conversation. It's going to take two or three hours. We're both going to be frustrated. I'm going to have to eat crow and say, it's probably my fault, all those kind of things. And I don't want to do that. I'd much rather just avoid the whole disagreement altogether. Which sounds like a really, really healthy plan for a long-term marriage, right? My spirit, on the other hand, says, listen, I know you don't want to do this, but you need to lean in towards your wife. You need to make sure that that last fight is not your last fight. You need to be willing not only to, to make sure that your point gets heard, you need to listen. And in fact, as the head of your household, it's your job to listen first. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I will tell you there are times when the last thing I want to do is 10 o'clock at night. The last thing I want to do is have another hour long conversation. The, I just want to go to bed. She just wants to go to bed. And there are moments in our marriage where we've just had to kind of table the discussion and go, we're not going to find complete we're not going to fix it tonight, but can we just can we just move towards one another and pray together? And can we just put our anger down and pick it back up in the morning and work through this? And I'll tell you, it looks a lot different in the morning. But there are other times when we've had to lean into it and it's midnight and we're both exhausted. We both have long days in the morning, but we work through it. And I'll tell you this. In no way are we do we have the perfect marriage? There are a lot of things that I do that I need to work on. There are a lot of things that Kathy does. But I will say this, we are far healthier today because we've been willing to lean in and work through it than if we had just walked away from it and avoided the conversation altogether. The only reason that we're married today, apart from just this boneheaded, we are going to, we we made a commitment, a covenant, we are not, there's no back door to this marriage. The only reason that we are married today apart from the grace of God is that by the Holy Spirit's enablement, we have been able to lean in and work through our differences. They're still there. They don't go away, but we have more grace for one another. And I appreciate my wife more because of that hard work of working through it. We have been trained up by the, by those disagreements by our conflict that we would much rather in our flesh avoid altogether. So what have we talked about so far? Rejoice in the Lord. Joy is different from happiness. Happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. Joy is an attitude. It's a posture towards life. Secondly, we talked about the fact that joy comes from having a proper perspective on life. It's not about us and our comfort and our happiness. We are part of a much grander narrative in which we are simply a supporting cast member. And because of that, we get invited into the adventure of getting to be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a broken world. That's huge. Many of us are looking for a purpose beyond today, beyond just our feelings and and, and getting satisfied for the moment. There it is. Our purpose is to be a representative of Jesus Christ to a world who desperately needs hope. Into that, let's now go back to Philippians chapter four, because Paul is going to give us a couple of different ways that we can cultivate an attitude and a heart of joy in the midst of a broken world. So Philippians chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, just in case you didn't get it the first time. Rejoice. Okay, Eric, I'm talking to you. You've read this now 12 times. Don't keep skipping over this rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all the lord is near my first thought is what the heck does gentleness have to do with anything here that doesn't that doesn't seem to fit and yet when you go back to the original greek word gentleness epiekes is often used is often translated as a reference to an attitude of kindness and forgiveness when the expected response is retaliation what is expected is that i try to get back at this person i would lash out but instead be gentle forgive let it go don't seek to get revenge allow god to have it remember god is near god is the judge you are not and we're reminded in other places that we need to forgive in the same way that the lord has forgiven us uh, Somebody that I respect once told me that, you know, trying to hold on to anger and resentment, seeking to get revenge is kind of like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. Who's it hurting? Usually us. So what is one way that we can cultivate an attitude of joy in the midst of a broken world? Forgive. Let it go. Rather than seeking to get revenge, allow your gentleness to be evident to everybody. Reading on, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Anxiety is one of those things that it feels like we don't have a whole lot of control over. Huh. Anxiety is our natural response to that feeling that life is out of control and that we could somehow get hurt. It's our, it's our body's natural desire to somehow figure out a way to protect ourselves. I guess you could say that anxiety is our attempt to gain control over our circumstances. We're trying to figure out a way that we can protect ourselves. And the reality is there's a lot of our circumstances that are completely outside of our control that we can't do anything about. And so we will continue to feel anxiety in those areas and it'll never change. So Paul says, rather than continuing to just grind on these things, trying to figure out a way that you can gain control over your circumstances, bring those areas that you've been fixated on, those things that you're terrified of, bring those to God. To so the creator and sustainer of the universe, the only one who has a claim to having any control over any of this anyway. Bring them to him with thanksgiving. Kind of another word that stands out. It's like, what what does that have to do with anything? Well, thanksgiving is the key to that proper perspective. Because in the moment, when we're focused on the things that we're concerned about, it's our natural knee-jerk response to pray, God, please help me in this. Please get me out of this. But our focus is always on the thing, and it seems so overwhelming and we don't see a way out of it. Thanksgiving helps us to step back and remember, A, the ways that God has already been faithful to us in the past. We all I tend to forget so often what God has already done in the moment of a new trial. That becomes everything, and I just wonder what's going to happen here. But Thanksgiving also helps us step back and recognize who God is. He's God. And His purpose... And his plan is far greater than my momentary comfort. Far greater than what I hope will come out of this. Man, I had a a, about 11 months ago. I can't believe it's been almost 11 months ago. I had a great opportunity to practice this when our second-born son, Grayson, was born prematurely, when he was literally ripped out of the womb 11 weeks before he should have ever seen the light of day. And those first 48 hours were probably the the longest two days of my entire life. As he went from this beautiful, albeit very tiny, little boy who seemed to be breathing really well on his own, except that his chest, every time he breathed, literally almost touched his spine. It was the weirdest thing because his sternum had not yet formed, or at least hadn't solidified. In 48 hours, we realized that he had pneumonia, that he had an infection that had gone all the way into his spinal column, that when they tried to put him on ventilation because he was laboring so hard and because of the pneumonia, his lungs collapsed, not once, but twice. His blood pressure was so low that they they believed that he was anemic and that he maybe had a... A brain bleed, that blood was literally just kind of pooling in his brain, which could cause very long-term effects. All of these things in 48 hours, and we're going from excited to be parents to wondering if he's ever going to come home. And in that moment, you better believe I felt anxiety. As a daddy, I wanted nothing more than to wrap my arms around that little boy and protect him from all the stuff he was going through, and there's never a time in my life that I felt more out of control. I had absolutely no ability to control anything when it came to Grayson. And so I did the only thing I could do. I brought my prayers, my petitions to God. I remember very clearly the prayer that I prayed to God, knowing very well that if Grayson lived, he may have very long-term deficits and he may never be able to be completely independent of us. And I remember praying very clearly, God, I just want my boy. I just want, I just want to take him home. I just want to raise him. Can you let me have my boy? And in that moment with Kathy, we did something that seemed a little bit counterintuitive. We began to worship God in the midst of the questions. We began to thank him for all of the times in our past that he's been faithful to us and the ways that he used those really difficult seasons to grow us and nurture us. I've found for myself, it's the the times when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death that I'm actually clinging closest to God. And it's those times that I grow the most profoundly. We also began to praise him for who he was and the fact that he was God and we were not. And so we literally, and I have to, I'm one of those guys that my body posture kind of affects my thinking. So I literally had to take my hands, which represented to me my heart, and unclenched my fingers and open my hands and say, I submit my boy into your hands. Your will be done. Because I realized I'm not guaranteed a happy, healthy baby. I'm not guaranteed grace in it all. We begin to thank him for entrusting us with this little life, even if it was only for those first two days. Thank you that we got to see him. Thank you that we got to name him. Thank you that we have him. Thank you that we're even able to have children at all. Something weird happened in the midst of that. Even when all of the questions were still swirling, To use Paul's language, in the midst of our deepest, darkest moments, as we begin to bring our requests to God with thanksgiving, we begin to experience this type of supernatural peace that went beyond our momentary circumstances. We began to rest in Jesus Christ even when everything seemed so completely out of control. And then as the news came back, and I remember very vividly sitting out on, I was, I was out on the lawn at my house, Ethan was playing Frisbee with one of the neighbor kids, and I get the call from Kathy, and she's weeping uncontrollably. But the first thing that comes out of her mouth, and I'm so grateful it was, is, don't worry, it's good crying, <laughs> all right? There's no bleeding on the brain, and I lost it. I literally, I didn't realize the amount of weight that had been on my shoulders until I heard that it my worst fear wasn't realized. And we were able to worship God and celebrate in that. But even if he had chosen to take my boy home then, I, want, I truly hope that I would be able to stand before you and say, I worship God and I trust him. And in spite of the pain that we feel, I trust that God is in control and his will be done because ultimately our lives are his. He can do with us as he wishes. And our son's death would not get the last word. Our pain would not get the last word. In this world we'll have trouble, but take heart because through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that He made on the cross, He's overcome the worst pains that we'll ever endure. So, how do we cultivate an attitude of joyfulness in the midst of a broken world? Rather than seeking to get revenge, forgive. Cultivate a heartbeat or a lifestyle of gentleness. Rather than holding on to anxiety and trying to wrestle control over the situations that we are faced with, bring our prayers and our petitions to God with thanksgiving, that proper perspective of who He is and what really matters. And the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, verse 8, Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. It's funny when I read that list because it seems so contrary to what our society celebrates, doesn't it? Every time I turn on the news... The vast majority of it is negative. It's about the things that are untrue, about the brokenness. I mean, TMZ celebrates talking about what the, the hurt and pain that is going on in people's lives. We revel in it. That's the kind of stuff that gets on the covers of the magazines that we see as we're, as we're checking out. Right on the level of our kids... You've got girls in skimpy bikinis. You've got guys who are wearing nothing but Speedos or, or short shorts. You know, we, our, our society celebrates sexuality in our movies, on our television. We celebrate violence. I have a friend who, who used to run a recovery program, and he said, listen, what we celebrate becomes the norm. And what does our society celebrate? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We celebrate the sexuality, the sexualization of people. And then we wonder why, ladies, you feel so much pressure to look a certain way and why you feel so stinking insecure about yourself that you resort to any number of things to look the right way. We wonder why we become so focused on lust and pornography. We wonder why our children are so focused on their bodies and they're sexting one another and they are getting pregnant out of wedlock. Well, we have television shows that celebrate little girls getting pregnant. Teen Mom, that's a great show to teach our children what they shouldn't do, right? What we celebrate becomes the norm. We celebrate gratuitous violence in our movies, in our television shows, in our video games, and then we, we stand aghast when some guy grabs an AK-47 and bursts into some movie theater I don't know why he chose to do it. But what we celebrate becomes the norm. And our society celebrates things that do not match this list. And here's the thing. The things that we think about affect our attitude towards the world, towards ourselves. It affects our, our view of other people, of God, of ourself. And ultimately, it affects our actions. The things that we allow into our mind don't make us unclean. It's the things that come out of us that make us unclean. However, I I can't eat McDonald's every single day and then expect to be able to go run a marathon without, right? You know, I mean, the stuff that I allow to go in is going to affect me. Similarly, the things that we allow into our mind, the things that we dwell on, the things that we watch. There's a book that I'm currently reading. It it, it won a bunch of awards. I was really excited to get it from the library. I'm about 100 pages in. And I'm pretty much at that point where I'm ready to just close the cover and stop reading. Because it's so full of things that are not on this list. And it affects me. It affects the way that I view the world, this dystopian type of world. It's like... My world is already full of brokenness enough. Do I really want to continue to fill my mind with this? One of my favorite bands growing up, Sublime, love them. Okay? I know there's several of them. I, I, I bought their, like, gold platinum CD or whatever. And, I, and I'm, like, so excited to get it. I've memorized all these songs. I put, the, I put the CD in. Kathy's in the car. Ethan's in the back. And the songs start coming on, and I'm singing them all by heart, not even thinking about the words I'm saying, not even really realizing what the song is about. And Kathy goes, what are you listening to? This is horrible. Your son is in the car. And I started listening to the words that I had just been literally singing, and I went, oh, that song's about this? I had no idea. Because I never listened to the words. I just enjoy the beat. Needless to say, I don't listen to that CD much anymore because it's like, do I really? Paul put put it this way in another letter. Hey, listen, all things are permissible, okay? But not everything's beneficial. All things are permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. And I have to ask myself... Hey, most of us are over 17. Merv, some of us, a little bit way past 17, right? You can go watch any movie in the theater. It's permissible. But is it beneficial? PG-13 movies, sometimes way worse than rated R movies in terms of the content. Is it beneficial? Kathy and I don't go to see movies very much anymore. We rent them so that it's a lot easier just to press the power button and turn it off and take it back. And we do that far more often than we actually finish movies these days, which is kind of pathetic. But is it beneficial? You're adults. You can cruise the net and see just about anything on there. Legally, it's permissible. But is it beneficial? It's permissible. But are you going to be mastered by it? I think about even the way that this type of an attitude of cultivating, of focusing on things like, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I think about how that list could affect the way that I view my wife. Because I'll be real honest with you. The seasons in my relationship with her that we have been the most distant, that I have been the most unkind to my wife, have been the seasons where I am most focused on the things that frustrate me about my girl. I see our differences... And they frustrate me because I'm adaptable. I just want to run at stuff. And she's like, nope, we have to think about it. Nope, we're planned. This is the schedule. We can't do that. And I'm like, "Ah, I just want to go. Why do you slow me down, woman? I think that. I don't usually say that. And in those moments that I get fixated on the things that frustrate me, they become all I can see. When I focus on the things that are, that are not praiseworthy, when I focus on the things that frustrate me, my attitude towards my wife changes. And from that, my actions toward my wife change radically. And I'm really unkind to my girl. And I'm distant and I'm cold and I'm unhappy. On the other hand, those seasons where I'm able to look beyond, and it's not that those differences don't go away, but when I'm able to see them from a different perspective, do you realize there are moments in my life where I look at my wife and I go, I am so unbelievably grateful that God gave me you because my never i know seriously married way out way above you know uh, way out of my own you know range but anyway um, i look at my girl and i go listen our differences sometimes i'm able to view them for what they really are they're a blessing because whereas i'm adaptable and i would probably burn both candles at, or burn the candle at both ends my girl slows me down and reminds me of what really matters be present with your family stop trying to just produce and perform, be present. I'm really grateful for the fact that my wife is responsible because I would probably not show up for about half the things I said I would show up for if it weren't for her keeping our calendar and going, hey, listen, you do need to make sure that we've got these things so you can't say yes to everything, Eric. Slow down. I'm a better man because of the woman that God has given me. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. Marriage is hard because you've got two very imperfect, very narcissistic people. And I think that pretty much describes everybody who are trying to make things work. And one of the things that Lee said a couple weeks ago that has sat with me is that I don't think that there is any marriage where both partners are completely compatible. You are going to have conflict. Now there are areas where we have strengths, but if you're looking for perfect compatibility where that person completes you and makes you feel so happy and so joyful about life and it's just wonderful and it's never hard, forget about it. That's in the movies. And that's because they only show about the first day or two of their life or they stop at the marriage and that's it, right? It's not realistic. When we begin to focus on it's about me and about my happiness, and then you start encountering the difficulty of actually having a relationship with somebody who's different from you. And then we're shocked that people get divorced. I'm going to wrap this up in just a moment. Suffice it to say this. We have a choice in the ways, in what we focus on. This is not a call for us to bury our head in the sand like some ostrich that refuses to see brokenness around us. We live in a broken and fallen world. But do you know what my favorite thing in the whole world is to watch on television? The Olympics. I love them. Not only because of the, the, the competition, which I really enjoy seeing people competing at the highest levels in something they've given their life to. One of the reasons why I love watching the Olympics is because all of the stories are positive. They're redemptive. I was watching about a kid last night, he's from Ireland, who was going out to do his floor exercise in gymnastics and they start enumerating all of the things that he's overcome to get there. At age 10, he had a tumor removed from his spine. The doctor said he would never walk again. Then he began to walk again. Then, in a fall, when he was doing gymnastics, he hit his head and he had brain damage. They said he would never walk be able to do gymnastics again. He couldn't even walk at that point. He proved them wrong. Then he, he snapped not one, but both Achilles tendons. The doctor said he would never compete again. He broke bones. He overcame thing after thing after thing, and he is standing here on the greatest stage in the world for his sport. He's got this giant smile on his face. We're celebrating the triumph over adversity And he totally tanks. Yesterday, I mean, I watched him. He fell like three times on this floor exercise and you go pretty much, okay. That was his Olympic moment. And if that were me and I'd given my entire adolescence to that, I would probably be pretty broke and I'd probably be pretty angry. You know know what was on his face as he walked off? A smile. Because his perspective was right. I don't know what was going through his mind. He was probably pretty crestfallen in the sense that he had illusions that he might be able to win a gold medal. But the reality is, he had already overcome all that adversity. And what he got to do was celebrate the fact that he just got to compete in the Olympics. And I join him in celebrating that. It doesn't matter, it's not about the medal, it's about his own journey. Whatever is good, whatever is right. Whatever is true, whatever is praiseworthy and admirable, think on those things. Because when we begin to fixate on our shortcomings, life is going to seem a whole lot darker. In your, in your bulletins, I wrote this out because I didn't trust myself to remember it. it this basically sums it all up, and I'd like to invite the, the worship team to come up. In summation, the key to finding joy in the midst of a broken world is not to pretend that the world is not broken. Rather, the key is to view our lives through the lens of eternity. It's not about this moment. This is simply a blip in an overall gigantic journey. And as we begin to see it in that light, our perspective is going to change. Then it's going to be easier to give grace to people who hurt us rather than seek to get revenge. That's living a life of gentleness. Then it's going to be easier to find joy and peace as we rest in Christ rather than being overwhelmed by our anxious need to control our circumstances. And then it's going to be easier to be able to find the redeeming qualities of life in the midst of a broken world that loves to focus on the bad. So as we're about to to go into a time of worship, there are a couple of ways that you might want to respond. Perhaps there's somebody that you've been holding on to resentment and anger towards. Perhaps the best way you can worship right now is to forgive them, to lay that need for revenge down. Maybe there is an area or areas of your life that have just been so overwhelming and the anxiety hasn't stopped. And maybe the best way to respond right now is simply to bring those things to God, lay them down at his feet and go, God, this matters to me. But open your palms, the palms of your heart and say, God, I entrust this to you. Your will be done. And worship and thank him for his faithfulness in spite of the outcome. Or maybe perhaps right now, the best thing you can do is just to worship him with your heart. Listening to the words. And if they're the true cry of your heart, then singing them with all you got. Okay, so let me pray for us. And we're going to go into a time of worship. Father, I thank you for the reminders that you've given me and us today. I thank you, Jesus, that in you... We can find joy in the midst of a broken world because at the end of the day, we recognize that our momentary troubles do not get the last word. And they are just a speck in comparison to the light of eternity in relationship with you. So we give you this morning and I pray that you would help guide us, Holy Spirit, in how we are to respond to you right now. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.